that was that is commemorative of the siege on Jerusalem uh, when Nebuchadnezzar took it. I think it is also or was a prophecy and a commemoration of the siege that has occurred on the Church of God uh, from the time the Tkachis took over and and uh, those sieges have considered or continued in smaller degrees and smaller places since as we've grown smaller and smaller as groups as splinters and the dividing continues so uh, <coughs> Satan certainly has a siege against God's people and uh, has done a great deal of destruction wherever you look so even as Zechariah said uh, these fasts should still be in effect Zechariah being a prophecy of the end times and we need to recognize not just Nebuchadnezzar's siege on Jerusalem thousands of years ago, but Satan's and man's siege on the church today, because that has not abated and will continue until God rebukes Satan and uh, keeps him from it. I guess that leads a little into what I am going to talk about today. Uh, Christ said that the perilous times would come, and I think you can look around the world today and the whole political situation, the financial situation, uh, the moral situation, and realize that these are indeed very perilous times. And there in Matthew 24, Christ said that earthquakes and various things of that of natural phenomenons would occur as well as nations warring against one another and so on. And we see that increasing about us almost daily, it seems. So he said then that he that endures to the end shall be saved. So in the context, he's showing that there is a great deal to endure and that it will be very, very difficult to do so. And during the tribulation and toward its close, he says things will get so bad that no flesh would be saved alive if he didn't cut some time short somewhere in the process. Uh, and he said that it will become so bad that even the very elect would be deceived if it were possible from lying signs and wonders of false prophets and false Christs and so on there. And we look at that and it's frustrating uh, to live in this kind of a world. And then we can look in the mirror and look at ourselves and see that we are not what we should be either, that we have many faults, problems, weaknesses, sins. Uh, we leave things out that we ought to do, sins of commission, things we're supposed to do, and then sins of omission uh, as well. So it can be at times discouraging. Now, is that an attitude that we need? Is it an attitude we ought to have? And if we have come to have it to one degree or another, uh, we need to be encouraged and given hope to get beyond it and indeed to endure. So I want to look at some of the things that Christ and Paul had to say today uh, that might give us some encouragement. You know, he did tell us, and I've quoted it many times, uh, even in the book of Joshua, where he talked to Joshua, in Haggai, in the minor prophets, even in the major prophets, uh, he has different elements of four things he says. He says, Fear not, be of good courage, 
be strong, and work. So those are four things that we need very much to concentrate on because he repeated them over and over, actually, in various applications in the prophecies and even before the prophecies. And we'll find even in the New Testament, we find some of the same admonitions being given. So we're in a time that fear is here. We're in a time when we need courage because there's a lot to face. We also need to be very strong because there are things that will debilitate us, take our strength away, and make us weak. And we can't allow that. And also to work, whether it be personally working on our character and our faults and so on, doing good works and works toward man and God. But we also have a commission that he brought us here to do, uh, to build a temple and to build Jerusalem and to be an example to the world. So we have a lot of work ahead of us. It's been a little bit slow developing, but that doesn't mean it's not going to happen. We'll see a scripture along those lines here in a little bit. But let's start in Luke 18 uh, and see what Christ had to say about some of the issues we would face. He spoke a parable to them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint. Don't feel faint, don't feel weak, don't feel powerless, because prayer should impart something other than a fainting, weak position. Uh, one leads to the other. Prayer should lead to strength and power. It should not lead to feeling faint or ineffective or weak. And yet many times we feel that way. Uh, we have examined many times in the Bible verses that show that we are weak and helpless and deceitful and desperately wicked. And one reason we've concentrated so much on those verses is that Herbert Armstrong led us out of Protestantism, where it says there are no works involved. You just live totally under grace, so it doesn't matter really what you do, and the commandments are done away. So in trying to refute that, he emphasized the scriptures showing what human nature really is over and over and over, so that we might actually get the point uh, of what natural man truly is. Now, once the church began to be divided and scattered, we had to analyze why. And when we read Revelation 3, we saw that Laodiceanism had caused a lot of that. Self-righteousness, thinking we're okay, being lukewarm, thinking we had it made, thinking we were righteous to one degree or another. So since then, once God began to open these scriptures up to my understanding, I also have preached how we need to repent and overcome and grow and, and be different than we have been because God is in the process of calling a few from those that he has called. I mean, choosing some from those that he has called. So, we want to be selected. We want to be chosen. So, we have to repent and turn to him with our whole heart. Now, those scriptures are all very, very true and and applying them to the church today is also uh, something that fits perfectly. On the other hand, it needs to be balanced somewhat with us understanding where God is in all this 
and realize that there is hope in spite of ourselves. So he opens this passage or this parable by saying we are always to pray and not to faint. So prayer should ultimately give us strength, hope, faith, courage, and be able to face whatever we have to face. Prayer should impart that. Saying, there was in a city a judge which feared not God, neither regarded man. This judge was omnipotent, I guess you'd have to say, in his own mind. Uh, so, he was all-encompassing, and nobody could touch him because he knew everything and was everything. And there was a widow in that city, and she came to him, saying, Avenge me of my adversary. We don't know what the difficulty was, but somebody had something against her and was doing something to her. So she needed help and relief. And he would not for a while. So she kept coming. But afterward he said within in himself, Though I fear not God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Now in this particular case, <laughs> the judge was so self-righteous, it was all about him. He didn't really probably care for the widow. In fact, she was a, a gnat in his face. But rather than her continuing to bother him, he was going to give her what she wanted so she'd get out of his face. Now, God is omnipotent. God does know everything. God does not make mistakes. He does not, however, have the attitude this judge had. But he uses this situation to teach us a very important lesson. He says, yet the... Oh, let's see, wait a minute. Uh, verse 6, And the Lord said, Hear what the ju unjust judge says. And shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night to him, though he bear long with them? So he says, spiritually speaking, we're going to be in the same situation as uh, that judge and that woman. <coughs> but God will avenge his own elect. He will take care of them. And he says we have to go to him day and night. Day and night. So he says, pray so that you won't be weak or faint. And know that he is going to answer, though he bear long with them. It doesn't say he's going to answer everything right away, does it? It says you go day and night, and he will bear long with you. Well, why does he have to bear long with us? Because we are not what we ought to be. And he has to be patient, and wait, and hope, and give us opportunity to repent and change and grow. But he is willing to do that. We have to do our part and cry day and night, day and night to him. I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, shall he find faith on the earth. So God is willing to be patient. He's willing to hear our prayers day and night, even though we may not be at the righteous level we ought to be. And he is willing to answer speedily to us. And yet there remains the question, will he find faith on earth when he returns? And that casts some doubt on whether there will be much faith. We will see the faith and belief 
which are very similar or essentially the same, are very, very important in our spiritual attitude and approach to life. Now he spoke this parable to certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Now isn't that what a Laodicean is? It says that they are self-righteous, they think they're okay, and they despise others. So we have today, within the greater church of God, and here, uh, people who feel righteous, and then they despise or put down others or are negative toward them. We cannot be in that attitude and that approach. So he spoke this parable toward us if we're that way. And we all are to one degree or another and have been. That's why we were spewed out is because we were that way. And we have to get past it. So what does he say? He says, I spoke this to people who felt good enough about themselves that they were willing to put others down. Now, none of us would like to describe ourselves as self-righteous, but it is human to think at least highly enough of ourselves that we're better than that nerd. <laughs> you know? I may not be God, and I may not be much, and I may not be truly righteous, but at least I'm high enough to put you down. You don't have to think too highly of yourself to be able to put someone down who you despise, do you? But it's easy to have enough trust in ourselves that they think someone else is less than we are and should be the subject of our ridicule. So he spoke that to those of us who are that way. He said then, two men went up into a temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. He's going to show you now uh, what he means by someone who thinks he's better than someone else. This is a pretty dramatic example, but it serves to give the point. Our daily life may not be this dramatic, but here's what it really is, he says. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus, with himself. He prayed about himself, with himself, uh, with himself in mind, and said, God, I thank you that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican over here. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. So here's someone who's pretty self-important, full of himself, and is looking down on someone else. And the publican, standing far off, would not lift up so much as his eyes to heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, I think we can probably look back on our lives and we can see when we've had the attitude, at least in part of the Pharisee, or the, yeah, the Pharisee, and I think if we've been honest with ourselves and reading Scripture and what it says about human nature and how all have sinned and so on, uh, we might find ourselves pretty often in the position of the publican, to where we don't feel that we have perhaps the full right, the full strength, the full um, righteousness, to the point that we feel that we can approach God 
in a very bold way because we recognize how weak and small and ineffective we truly are. And therefore, we come and we whine and we snivel and we ask for forgiveness and sometimes we don't really feel it'll be given because we don't feel we're worthy of it. Uh, we probably find ourselves in that position uh, pretty regularly. I know I do. Uh, where I don't feel that I'm worthy to go before God because I know myself pretty well or at least well enough to know that do we need that here? Yeah, just for a minute. Oh, okay uh, anyway if we find ourselves in that position uh, where we feel sinful we feel unforgiven or not worthy of forgiveness and so on then that puts a Grand Canyon between us and God, doesn't it? Because he tells us to pray and not feel weak or faint. So prayer is supposed to make us feel strong without giving us the attitude of the Pharisee. We need the attitude of the publican. I'm nothing. I'm human. I'm far from what God is, and there's this great chasm or canyon between me and God. <clears throat> and is there not? <laughs> None of us come anywhere near the level of righteousness and goodness of God. Therefore, that canyon does exist. The question then is, how do we get across it? How do we get across it where we can have confidence, faith, and hope, and strength without becoming a Pharisee and lifting ourselves up in our own estimation. Because that's an easy thing to do. Human beings being so proud, so egocentric, so vain, if they do begin to have a little success in any part of life, but especially spiritually here, then we begin to feel spiritually proud and self-righteous of what progress we have made. So we transform ourselves with a little growth <laughs> from a publican into a Pharisee. So how do, we, how do we bypass the Pharisee and still have the attitude of meekness and of uh, love and kindness and humility that Matthew 5 tells us to have like the publican to some degree, and yet to God without becoming like the Pharisee and becoming proud and self-righteous, which we experienced then. We've all done that. We got there. And then we have to repent all over again and, and bring ourselves back down to the point we feel like the publican and then try not bypassing the self-righteousness this time and get to be like God. How do you get across that canyon? There's only one way. Christ has to be the bridge to get us to be like God without being self-righteous like Satan. <clears throat> and that is a very tough, straight, narrow, ruddy road that has to be uh, negotiated by all of us. Anyway, the publican beat him himself on the breast and wouldn't even lift his eyes and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Nothing wrong with that. But he said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. 
For everyone that exalts himself shall be abased, and he that humbles himself shall be exalted. So, we can't exalt ourselves. We have to abase ourselves as the publican and recognize our weakness, our smallness, our ineffectiveness, our lack of righteousness, and be humble, be meek, be serving. And then if God chooses to exalt us, let him do it, not our own mouths or our own actions. So this we have to do. Now, it could be easy to begin to think, well, look at me, I'm nothing much, and we can have an attitude like the publican, where, you know, I can't even lift my eyes and pray, but let's understand God's attitude toward us, because this is very vital in getting us to have the proper righteous approach, as opposed to the self-righteous, in understanding how God feels about us. I'm trying to find Peter, and I'm looking past it. Let's go to uh, 2 Peter 3. Now, this in this epistle, Peter is trying to give us hope. That's kind of the main theme that runs through First and Second Peter. He says, This second epistle, beloved, I now write to you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. So he says, you started learning truth, you started learning purity, coming out of a world that is impure, and he says, sometimes we kind of settle back into being human, and we lose sight of where we were headed. Remember when you first began to understand the truth, and became excited about it, how hopeful you felt. You had a very strong, new hope and love for the truth. It showed you a path that would lead you out of this morass of human mess down here and lead you toward the kingdom of God. And it was based on Scripture, which is true, so you had that new, lively hope within you that if I follow this path, if I do what these scriptures say, I'll be in the kingdom of God. And it was so exciting, so exciting, we decided we'd go tell, our, tell all our friends and neighbors, and that didn't work, because they weren't excited. It didn't give them any hope. They didn't understand it, didn't believe it, didn't want anything to do with it. But we had it. We, were, we felt strong in it. So he says, I write to you to stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. Remember how it was when you learned these things, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. So he says, we read to you out of the prophets, and we told you the things that Christ had to say, and they gave you hope and faith and encouragement and strength and boy, you were ready to run through walls. You gave up things you'd enjoyed all your life. You gave up habits. You gave up foods. You gave up days you worked. You gave up all kinds of things because you had great hope that it would lead to salvation. He says, don't forget that attitude. We need that attitude. It's easy to get discouraged and frustrated under the circumstances we find ourselves in. 
whether with the world or with what we have around us, and even spiritually in the church. And saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. You know, it's gone on generation after generation. All those prophets died. <clears throat> Their bones are now rotted. Uh, he says, For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. The land wasn't showing in Genesis 1 in a new creation, but they were brought up out of the water by Christ. Whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished, but the heavens and the earth, which are now <clears throat> by the same word kept in store, reserved to fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So he says, as sure as the water covered the earth, the land came back out, whether you refer to Genesis 1-1 or to Genesis 6 and Noah, and the rainbow to remind us of that, uh, the water did subside and the earth showed again. And you can find fossils on top of the mountains around here, showing that those mountains at one time or two times were completely underwater and came out. So the testimony is right there in the geology all around us, in the canyon walls and wherever you dig, you'll find fossils that are from sea creatures all over the earth. So he says, as sure as that is, this fire at the end is going to come as well. Verse 8, Beloved, beloved be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the eternal as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. A thousand years seems long to us, since we only live 70, 80, 90 years maybe. But to God, time goes by pretty quickly, and it's, to Him it's like a week, 7,000 year plan. Uh, but it's we who have the problem believing Him. So he says in verse 9, He is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us. Remember we read that in Luke, how he is patient and puts up with our crying day and night, waiting for us to be what we ought to be. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So he says, you may think it's taking longer than it ought to, but he is very patient, and his attitude is that he is not willing, he does not want any to perish. Now, believe it or not, that includes you and me. God does not want you individually to perish. He wants us all to make it. He doesn't even want me to perish, even though some would probably like that. He doesn't want any of us to. Now, we need to have belief and faith in that statement. You're still here. You're included in that. And he hasn't given up on us. He hasn't given up on us. Any of us. Okay? If we still have the breath of life, he's still waiting for us to repent. He's still waiting for us to change and to grow. And he's giving us every opportunity. He gives everyone space to repent, as he puts it. And so what space we have is what amount of time we have left, right? That's our space. That's our time. That's our opportunity. 
And Ezekiel 33 makes it very clear that we could be sinners, and if we repent at the end, we'll be forgiven and saved out of it. If we were righteous and turned to sin, then we won't be saved out of it. So he gives us all the time we have as a human being walking this earth. And it doesn't matter what you've been, what you've done, you have space to repent and be forgiven. So there's great encouragement, great strength in what Peter writes here. God wants everyone to make it. That's his mind. That's his outlook. That's his approach. We look at ourselves sometimes and think, how could he use me? Well, there's nothing wrong with acknowledging that because we see how weak we are. And yet, on the other hand, we have to recognize that there is a way across the canyon. The Christ, through what he has done and his attitude toward us, can get us from where we are, nowhere, to God the Father. He's the bridge. He can get us there. And we have to believe that. Otherwise, we what? We grow weak. We faint. We give up. We don't endure. Because we don't have enough belief that he can get us from here to there. We feel overwhelmed. We feel we can't make it. Well, we can't on our own. It is only Christ in us, the hope of salvation, that can get us there. What did Paul say? Who can deliver me from this body of death? Only Christ. So he recognized the futility of human work at salvation, but he recognized the power that is in the blood of Christ and in the life of Christ today who wants all of us to be there and not perish. So, yeah, realize what we are, be honest, be truthful, but then say, I need help, and pray always that we not faint, that we not be weak and give up. Let's see another one along these lines in Luke 12. These are days that we need encouragement because the whole world is against God and only a very few are willing to even try to obey God at this point. Luke 12 and verse 22. Uh, he's talking here about being beware of covetousness and not seeking riches of this world. And leading up to uh, verse 22, he talks about the rich man who was so self-important that he had his barns full and man what am I going to do so he decided he would tear down his barns and build bigger ones so that he had more place for everything he wanted now, the barns he had I'm sure <coughs> had enough in them to take care of him the rest of his life but he didn't care he wanted even bigger barns what billionaire do you know that says I have enough money have you ever heard a millionaire or a billionaire come out and say in the press or on the radio or TV, I have enough money. I don't want any more. There have been some who said I have more money than I can spend, but they didn't say that they were not going to try to get some more to not be able to spend. Uh, there might have been someone somewhere who said that, but it would be very rare, rare indeed, because the more we get, the greedier we are, it seems. So he told himself in verse 19, I will say to my soul, Soul, you have much goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, 
This night your soul shall be required of you. Then whose shall those things be which you have provided? I read an article just yesterday about people who had won the lottery since we had one, just one, and people who won millions and millions of dollars and who are now dead. And almost to a person, they regretted having ever won the lottery. Everybody buys tickets, and they've been, oh man, up this last week or two, they've been just buying them left and right, all they could afford, hoping to win, because that would be the way to live. Oh man, my problems are all over. Uh, so they buy them like crazy, and they are crazy, uh, to do so. But people who have one suddenly find that they have friends all over the world. Everybody's their long-lost uncle or whatever, and they just nip at their heels and they're, they're incessant in trying to get that money from them. And they also find that whatever problems they had, the money doesn't solve. And... Some have committed suicide. Some have been murdered by their jealous relatives. They just went on down the list of people who won the lottery, and, and there wasn't one happy story, at least in that article. Maybe there are some that he didn't research because that wasn't the point of his article. But nonetheless, it seems that most people who have that kind of a windfall, uh, their life begins to come apart. And as he said of this rich man, this night you will die. Well, a lot of those people died untimely deaths because they could not handle or others could not handle what they suddenly had. And it was too much. So is he that lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. That's the lead up to verse 22. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I say to you, take no anxious thought for your life, what you shall eat, neither for the body what you shall put on. The life is more than food, and the body is more than raiment. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which neither have storehouse nor barn, and God feeds them. How much more are you better than the fowls? He's going to teach a lesson in faith here. Which of you, with taking thought, can add to his stature one cubit? Can any of us make himself 18 inches taller? No, we couldn't. They don't make heels that high. Uh, and it wouldn't be us anyway. If you then be not able to do that thing which is least, why take up for the rest? Now, God says making you 18 inches taller and renew us as eagles and so on in many of the prophecies in the Old Testament. But we have trouble believing that because we look at ourselves being old and crippled and, and everything else that's wrong with us as human beings. Uh, but he says, restoring us or adding 18 inches to us isn't a big deal to him. So, why do we take anxious thought about what we'll eat and what we'll wear? And anxious thought is the key there, not to worry about those things. Yes, we should work and provide. And he says if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. So, yes, we're supposed to work. If also bless us, he can. He said, consider the lilies, how they grow. They toil not, they spin not. And yet I say that Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. He lived in a fine palace. 
He dressed as well as anybody, better than anyone probably, and he had everything he could possibly desire as a human being. But he says he didn't even compare to a lily, beautiful flower growing out of the ground. If then God so clothed the grass, which is today in the field, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Well, he says he's going to take care of us. What does he say in Isaiah 54 and 55? He says, come, have milk and, and wine without money. He says, leave where you are to the remnant church and come where I am working and I will take care of you. He's asking people at that time, at that point, and it's not far off, to leave their homes, to leave their jobs, to leave their families, to leave everything they have behind and come and follow him. Didn't Christ put that to the apostles? Leave your nets. Leave your fish. Come and follow me. He calls on us to trust him completely, totally, and entirely with our well-being. Now, what does that make him? It makes him concerned. It shows him caring. It shows him willing to do for us anything we need if we will but trust him and follow him. But we don't have anything to worry about. How many of us worry? Let me change that. Is there anyone here who does not worry about anything? About what I thought. <laughs> oh, you don't worry. Ah, come and see, come and see. Well, I'm not either, but that doesn't mean I don't have concerns that irritate me and bug me sometimes. We don't have to be a worry wart, but I don't. I think we can safely say no one has enough faith that they never concern themselves overly with conditions around them and things that they think they need but maybe don't have or what someone else is doing to them. or uh, there, there are things that we get overly concerned about. And some people just worry like a dog on a bone incessantly. Um, so there's, there's different variations in there. But he says we are to trust him and... He will take care of us in everything there is. So we need not be concerned. Uh, Seek not what you shall eat, verse 29, or what you shall drink, neither be you of doubtful mind. A mind that has any doubt that God will take care of him. We can see ourselves as the publican. We can see ourselves in the great gulf or chasm or canyon there is between us and God. But we have to have enough faith, enough belief in Him that we don't doubt. That our mind is set. We know God will answer His promises if we do our part. And that's where our doubt and our fear comes from, is we know that we so often fail in doing our part. And therefore, 
we get doubtful, we get frustrated, we get a little scared. Uh, if we have a true view of ourselves. But that doubt and that fear needs to be overcome so that we are not weak or faint and do not have a doubtful mind. For all these things do the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knows that you have need of these things, whether they be physical or spiritual. He knows our physical and our spiritual needs. And if we're honest with ourselves, we recognize that we have spiritual needs. It is easy to doubt ourselves. And we should doubt ourselves. But we cannot doubt God. Verse 31, Rather seek you the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. Now 32 is the verse I've been wanting to get to. And <clears throat> the first one I looked up in considering this passage. Verse 32, Fear not, little flock. <coughs> he said above this, Don't be of doubtful mind, and fear not. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sure now, would you mind getting me a glass of water? My throat's kind of getting scratchy. Excuse me. <coughs> Let's understand God's attitude here. It is His good pleasure. It's what He wants above all things. What did we read in Peter? He said there that... Uh, <laughs> I was going to say it, now I can't say it. Uh, I just drew a blank. I guess it's a senior moment. I think I can find Peter again. Here he said to be stirred up, and he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So his, he is of a ready mind, and he tells us to have a ready mind. Be eager, be ready to serve, to give, to help, to show love. Uh, not an unready mind where we hold back. But he doesn't want any of us to perish. And he tells us here, in addition to that, it's his good pleasure. We read in a Bible study the other night that I had a proverb there. I don't remember the whole thing, but it said the people who do certain things will be a delight to God. I don't think I'd ever focused on that in that way quite before. But God tells us that he has to be frustrated with our sins there in Isaiah. And, and we haven't brought him what we ought to. And he had to spew us out of his mouth because he wasn't happy with us here in the end time and that we need to repent. And yet contrasting that, he says <clears throat> that he wants us to be his delight. I, I don't think I've ever thought of myself as being a delight to God. I've always thought of myself kind of as a pain in the uh, neck to God. Uh, why don't you straighten up, Daryl? Has always been my attitude toward myself. And maybe I got that part. It may not be everybody that way. I got it in part because uh, my dad always considered a boy that wasn't working at any time uh, uh, worthless as tits on a bore. So I kind of grew up with uh, with that attitude a little bit about myself. 
So uh, I don't I don't think I'm anything great. I, I don't think I'm a delight to God, but I'd certainly like to become one. You know what I mean? He says in Zechariah 2 that his church, his people here at the end time, that he's calling here, here that's what he's talking about, here and now and soon, the apple of his eye. Like he looks at a tree full of apples. That's a good apple. I like that one. It's big, it's firm, it's turning red, it's getting ripe. That's my favorite apple on that tree. I want that one. And same thing as Nelson's sermon last week about the virtuous woman. That he's going to choose the fairest of them all. And uh, so we need to be beautiful spiritually. We need to be like a first ripe apple on the tree that he wants. And we need to become a delight to God. So he looks down and he nudges his son and says, That one really pleases me. What a delightful human being. Has God ever said that about you when he looked down from heaven? There is a delightful human being. I can't imagine it, thank you. Uh, and yet, that's what he wants to do. And he wants us to become that way. And he wants us to come to understand that that's the way he looks upon his people. That it is his good pleasure to give us his kingdom. It's not grudging. It's not, oh my, you've been such a pain. But come on in. There's his attitude. His attitude is, you've overcome. There's still a lot there that needs changed. But through the sacrifice of my son, I see no sin. I can impute no sin to you because of the righteousness of my son. Come on in. That's the way he wants to be. And that's what we need to be looking forward to. Is that through Christ, anything can be forgiven. It doesn't matter what it is. I've known people who were hookers, who came into the church, in my experience over the decades in God's ministry. And they had some difficulties with some of these scriptures and some of these attitudes. I use that example because it simply came to mind. I've, I've met murderers who were coming to a knowledge of the truth of God. In fact, I remember one in Fort Pierce, Florida, years and years ago, <clears throat> 50 years ago, nearly. First visit. Went in, my wife was with me. We sat down on the couch. And he says, would you like some apple juice? And then he said, no, wait a minute. He started out by telling us that we didn't know anybody that was as bad a sinner as him. And he went on and on and on. And then he finally, after laying the groundwork, said, I'm a murderer. I killed someone. And then he said, would you like some apple juice? He says, those who drink poison or bit by snakes won't die if God is with them. And I said, I'll have some apple juice. <laughs> he was trying to frighten me. <laughs> so, the murderer, he was having a trouble, obviously, with the way he approached that. He was having trouble with himself. 
uh, in the guilt and the shame and everything that went with what had transpired in his life, same as the hookers. So one sin's no worse than the other. But the self-respect that we should have, I don't mean vanity and ego, but the self-respect for being an upright human being should be there. But if we have been a worst of criminals, we might say, or others might say of us, it doesn't matter. Did not God call Rahab? Uh, will she be in the kingdom of God? Yes, she will. So, he's not willing that any should perish. Even those who are maybe worse than you and I might have been. In our, in our estimation. But those that we might have looked down upon who were as bad or worse than we were. No, he says, don't fear. I want to give the worst of human beings, whatever that might have been, murderers, thieves, adulterers, whatever. You know, we have a level of self-righteousness in the church of God where if you've been remarried, no matter the circumstance, uh, you're not qualified to be in God's kingdom. The church has always said it's okay to have murdered, it's okay to have stolen, it's okay to have broken the Sabbath or coveted or committed idolatry in one way or another, but if you've been divorced and remarried, that's unforgivable. That's the one sin that the church always said was unforgivable. But I find <clears throat> scriptural proof that that is not always the case. But we, in our self-righteousness, uh, want to know all about it. And the ch this church was self-righteous. Because in the 50s, 60s, we went through everybody's relationships. Well, they'd been married two, three, four, five times. We had to go back and see who all had slept with first and second and third and fifth and tenth and go through all their sins and all their life to see if they were truly bound to the person they were married to at that time. Because divorce and remarriage was one unforgivable sin. Well, if they'd lied and stolen and murdered and been put in prison and got out, we were willing to forgive that and say God forgives you, no matter what you did, unless you divorced and remarried. That is unforgivable. That was the church's posture on it. It was wrong, and it was not scriptural, but it was self-righteous. Does that mean that God did not intend one man and one woman to get married and stay that way as long as they live? No, that was his goal and purpose in the beginning. But if we sin and come short of any of God's laws, any of them can be forgiven. So, let's not be self-righteous. Now, where was I here? Uh, 30, 32 was it fear not he wants you to be in his kingdom no matter what so he then instructed them to sell what you have and give alms provide yourselves bags which wax not old or treasure in heaven that fails not where no thief approaches neither moth corrupts so it doesn't matter what you got in your physical bank account what you got in your spiritual bank account is there any value there that God would say, that person has enough treasure with me in righteousness and obedience and love and kindness and faith 
that I want them in my kingdom. They built it up. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Let your loins be girded about and your lights burning. So he tells us to be a light on a hill. What is, what is loins girded? What does that mean? It means dressed up and ready to go. Be ready to do. To give, to help, to serve, wherever you can. Alright, let's move on from there to the book of Hebrews. Boy, I'm about out of time. Uh, Hebrews was written by Paul. At least that's what we believe. He's the most likely candidate to have written the book of Hebrews. <clears throat> and it sounds like Paul. But he wrote to the church here, to the spiritual Jews, and that translates to you and me here in the end time. I don't have time to get into this very much. I intended to do more, but I wanted to lay a background with these other scriptures about God's attitude toward us and what our attitude should be in recognizing our folly, our sins, our weaknesses, and yet understanding that there has to be a way to get from where we are to where we are headed. <coughs> Hebrews lays that out for us in a very real sense. Because those people then were facing what we're facing, and what we're facing is what we've been talking about thus far in this sermon. The, the proper attitude to have toward God and the proper attitude to have toward ourselves. We are nothing. He is everything. Christ said of myself, I can do nothing. It's all the Father who does it in me. So, a truly realistic picture that I can do nothing is important. But then recognizing that there is someone who can do something with us and pursue Him and have his attitude that we should be believing and not doubting, but looking forward in strength and hope and faith to a sure reward if we just do our part and realize that we have to be close to God and imbued and empowered by his Spirit in order to be what we should be and to use the bridge of Christ to get to, to, to the Father. So let's start at least into this. God, who at different t sundry times and in different manners spoke in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. So he refers back, first of all, to the Old Testament and the Old Testament prophets uh, that God spoke to, and their message was certainly very important to those people then, and since they were written in prophetic terms of the end of the age, those prophecies are very, very important to us. And in this congregation, we have spent a lot of time examining all of those prophecies because they do have to do with us. Uh, but he spoke to them in the past. What does he do today? Has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. We know from John 1 and Colossians and other places that Christ is the one who did the creating. And he is, uh, from the very beginning, the Father worked through him to do the actual work. But he says, in addition to what we've learned from the prophets of the past, here in these last days, and Paul thought they were near the end of the age at that time, he's spoken to us through Christ. So we have Christ speaking through the prophets 
in ancient times. And he says, now we have Christ speaking to us now, just recently. Paul didn't hear him. He was called shortly after Christ went back to his Father in heaven. But the apostles had. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. So what is the first and foremost message, the thing mentioned first here, after addressing that Christ is the important factor in our lives? That he, by coming and living a perfect life, purged our sins. It doesn't make any difference what our sins have been. And we as humans would judge one against the other like we would of the harlot I just mentioned a little earlier. But how much sin does it take to have to die for sin? Just one. Doesn't even have to be a biggie as we might put them. The wages of sin, any sin, is death. That's why the law can't save you. Because nobody has been able to keep the law perfectly, save Christ. <coughs> and it is appointed to all of us once to die. All it takes is one sin. So, what difference does it make whether somebody's committed 50,000 or 50 million sins in their life, and you've only committed one or three? Can you look down on the one who has 50 million sins? No. You're both headed the same place. Doesn't make any difference who was the worst sinner. We like to compare ourselves among ourselves, and Paul said that is not wise. It's just not wise. If it's not wise, what then is it? Foolish. It is foolish for us to compare ourselves among ourselves. For us to say, in any form or fashion, I'm better than you are, or I'm more righteous than you are. Or at least I'm enough more righteous than you to be able to talk about you and put you down. We have no room for that. There is no excuse for that. In fact, that is satanic. Do we grasp that? Satan is the accuser of the brethren. And any time we are in an accusative mode or attitude, thought, thought process or word, we are kowtowing to Satan. That is his job. That is his description. We are playing into Satan's hands and we are not of God the moment we speak negatively of one another or impute motives one to the other or put each other down in any form or fashion. We are of our father the devil. Can that be any clearer? He's the accuser of the brethren. God is not. God says it is his honor to cover a sin. Not to hide it necessarily, except under the blood of Christ. And then it no longer matters. It's gone. It's not there anymore. It's gone. Yeah, we'll dig into each other's past a week ago, or a month ago, or a year ago, or 40 or 50 years ago, won't we? scratch around in the blood at the base of the stake of Christ 
and find somebody's sins. In God's mind, they all washed away of the blood of the Lamb. But humans are like Satan. They do not want to forgive. They do not want to put it behind. They want to keep it alive. They want to repeat it one to the other. That's human. Human nature is very similar to satanic nature. And Satan influences us through the power of the airwaves into his way of thinking. We need to think about that. Because as if it's so human to stab in the back or put down or enumerate or allude to the sins of others. We have no right. God is the judge. Does that mean if we see somebody shoplifting that we don't recognize it as a sin? No, we can see it's a sin. Uh, we might even say something to them. You know, you really ought to pay for that. But are we going to condemn them eternally or never forget what we saw them do? No. God says if they repent, how do you know what somebody's gone through? They may have committed sins. Maybe really, really bad ones in your eyes. Do you know what they've gone through? Do you know what they've said to God? Do you know how they've prayed? Do you know if they've repented? Do you know if they're struggling against something that may have been a problem in their lives and they want to overcome it? Do you know that they're crying out to God and asking Him to forgive them a sinner like the publican and not even wanting to lift their eyes to God in heaven because they feel so guilty and ashamed of what they are and have been? No, you don't know. But you'll very cheaply throw them under the bus, won't you? That's human. That's satanic. That's not godly. It's his glory to cover a sin. We need to make it our glory to forgive. What did he say in one day? Seventy times seven? Four hundred and ninety times. I don't know of anyone in my life who's ever approached doing something to me 490 times in one day. Uh, I, I think I would have been quite irritated and would remember it if that were the case. Now, I've had people do something or say something about me once or ten or maybe 20 times in a day. I don't know. Maybe not even that many times to my face, but I've had it to my face. Did I go away mad? Did I go away putting them down? Or was I willing to say in my mind, forgive them, Father, they don't know what they're doing? You're my judge. I've asked for forgiveness. But this human here won't allow that. They won't permit it. I'm sure glad God is our judge. <clears throat> he purged our sins. They're gone. Washed away. Purged means gotten rid of and sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, he fully intended to do that. Do we grasp that? That before man was ever created, the Father and the Son, or he who would become the Son, realized that Satan had already rebelled and he was loose in the universe and he had been made the present or the then ruler of the earth and still is to this day until Christ comes and binds him. 
And they said, you know, because of what Satan has done, if we make man and we give them human nature, which is a nature very similar to Satan's, they're going to sin. And you know what you're going to have to do, son? You're going to have to go to the earth. You're going to have to be born as a human being. And you're going to have to cry out and sweat blood to me every day so that you never give in and do what Satan or man has done since their creation, not even once. Now, you know Satan. You've seen how he is. Do you think you can go down to that earth and live, let's say, 33 and a half years, the prime of life? Do you think you can go down there with my help from heaven and not sin once? If you'll help me, Father, I can do it. With your help, I can do anything. Okay. Let's go ahead and create them. Let's go ahead and make them. Let's put them in the garden. Give them everything they could possibly want. You just won the lottery, Adam and Eve. You got everything you could possibly ever want right here. And then let's turn Satan the devil loose on them. And Christ must have sighed a deep sigh and said, All right, let's do it. I will go down and I will live perfectly. And I will die and my blood will be spat on the ground to purge their sins. And then he did it. And he has done it. And he purged your sins and mine. Now let's understand that about each other. Enough for today.